C-O-O Lounge, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 37 of the COO Roundtable, and we have two highly accomplished guests with us today. I've really enjoyed speaking with both of them in preparation for this interview. We've had some, some amazing conversations about the state of our industry and how both of them are structuring their firms for the future. So let's dive right in because we have a lot to talk about today. Joining us today from WealthSource Partners, they have offices all over the country, is Jason Mirabella. Jason lives in Indiana and he is the Chief Platform Officer. And for those of you thinking, well, wait a minute, Chief Platform Officer, that doesn't sound like a COO to me. Let me just read you his job description. And I'm quoting here. As the Chief Platform Officer, Jason is responsible for the strategic development and ongoing innovation of our unique client experience and advisor platform. On any given day, this might mean he's leading efforts to create and support cutting edge client service models or he's out seeking the best new advisor to join our team. So as you can see, based on that description, he is perfect for our discussion here on this podcast. So Jason, welcome to the COO Roundtable. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Well, great. And then joining Jason is someone I've known for many, many years, Tom Preston of Brighton Jones in Seattle. Tom is the Director of Client Service. And again, for those of you saying, wait a minute, <laughs> the client's Director of Client Service, that's not a COO either. I'm going to read from Tom job description. It says, overall responsibility for client retention, satisfaction, and engagement, operations management, client surveys and feedback, service team member development, strategic planning, and process improvement. So that is exactly what all of our listeners are working with or working for at all of their firms. So I'm very excited to have Tom join us. Tom, welcome so much. Matt, thank you. Appreciate it. It's uh, great to be here. Looking forward to it. Great. Well, Jason, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you give us a little background on WealthSource Partners? Sure. So WealthSource was technically founded in 2009. I came over through acquisition. I was a partner in a firm called SurePath Wealth Management. We also had a company called The Model FA, and we were acquired by WealthSource Partners in early 2021. Post-merger, we're at about $2 billion of AUM. And uh, we have about 39 employees and about roughly 30 advisors across the United States, including our independent and employee channel. Our ideal clients, we have a lot of, I guess you would call super affluent clients, but I would say our ideal client is the one to $5 million range. We're able to offer full wealth management services, including financial planning and investment management. Historically, we've grown through acquisition. Our plan is to continue to do so. WealthSource has doubled their AUM in the last two years and we're on track to double it again over the next 12 to 18 months. So you said 39 employees, 30 advisors, that's additive. So it's 69 total people. You don't have just nine support staff supporting the 30 correct. advisors. Yeah, correct. yeah right. I, that's what I figured. I just wanted to <laughs> just yeah. make sure. Okay, cool. Well, Tom, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know the Brighton Jones name, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the firm? Sure. So Brighton Jones was founded right at the beginning of the century in 2000. John Jones and Charles Brighton are the co-founders. Today, we have AUM of about $8.5 billion. I suspect that we will be at $10 billion by the end of 2022. We have 225 total employees. I would guess that 150 to 175 of those are in some advisory capacity. 
and so the rest are non-advisory and, and support. Our ideal client, well, our wealth management division is called personal CFO. That was a term that John and Charles coined back in the day. It, as everybody on this call probably knows, that's become a bit of a ubiquitous title. But at the time, personal CFO was a, a deliberate attempt to create an independent advisory structure that was different from what we were seeing in the marketplace with product-driven brokerage. And so when we think about the ideal client, it's typically someone who is interested in, in independent advice and typically has scarcity of time. So one of our most popular personas is called corporate all-star, which is another way of saying a busy working executive. So we typically work well with clients who are super intelligent, who have the ability to do the work themselves if they only had the time. They're really comfortable delegating and making decisions quickly. That typically is a profile that works well for us. And then we tend to work best with clients with AUM, say, between 3 and $15 million. In terms of how we've grown historically, we may be the only firm that's been on your show that has grown 100% over the last 21 years completely organically. During those early years, John and Charles were our rainmakers. And so most of the growth happened first through self-generated referrals and then later through client referrals as we brought on more business. In 2007, we joined the Fidelity Referral Program. So that was a large leap forward in terms of having a new channel to get new clients from. And that was also the first year that we expanded our offices beyond Seattle and we opened our first office in San Francisco and that helped create a new market for us there. Since that time, we opened another four offices through 2018. And then as recently as 2021, we opened six new offices. And so we have 12 currently. In 2018, we introduced digital marketing and paid media. That's another new client channel that we have in addition to Fidelity and our other traditional ways of getting new clients. What's the growth vision for the future? Our primary goal is to be one of the last firms standing. Matt, as you know, and Jason, huge amounts of consolidation going on in our industry right now. And we, as a purely organic, independent firm, want to continue to grow, and we want to be one of the last national firms of relevance in the country. Part of how we're going to do that is to continue to grow organically. We're going to be opening 30 new offices in tier one markets over the next three to five years. We've got a 10-year growth plan that says by 2030, we should be at $300 billion in revenue, about $40 billion in assets under management, and about 1,000 employees. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how rare it is that you've only grown organically. We've been talking for nine minutes, maybe. I would say that that means there's probably been 16 RA acquisitions since we <laughs> since we started talking. <laughs> so it is it is crazy what's going on in our industry. So I appreciate that uniqueness that you've grown organically. Also, what's unique about your story, Tom, is you've been at Brighton Jones for 18 years. That is incredible. Okay. So give us a little bit of your career journey that brought you to the position that you're in today? Sure. I was born in a log cabin. Oh, wait, you don't want me to go that far. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Brighton Jones is actually my third career. I came in 2003 when I was 38 years old. I just sold an unrelated private business and I was looking to break into a new industry. And so the joke goes, 
that I joined the Financial Planners Association. And lucky for me, the website listed all the member firms in alphabetical order. And, and I found Brighton Jones in the first 10 minutes. And I really liked the website. I really liked the message. And Charles was one of the few owners who reached back out and was willing to talk to me. And the rest, as they say, is history. I started at Brighton Jones as an associate advisor. So again, I, I was completely new to the industry. And so I was there to just contribute in any way I could while I was learning. And so I worked for four years as an associate advisor, primarily with John and Charles. And in 2007, when we got to about 500 million in AOM, John asked me to transition out of working in the business to work on the business. And I, I have to give him so much credit for having the vision even back then when we were still relatively small to recognize that as a company that was really poised for growth, he knew that if we if we didn't put in systems and procedures and job descriptions and defined roles, that we were just going to spin out of control. And so it was a it was a pretty remarkable first step where I became director of client service and then very shortly thereafter we hired our first COO as well. Great. And Jason, looking at your LinkedIn bio, you've had some twists and turns. There's been some acquisitions in there. That's you, you mentioned that's how you joined WealthSource Partners was through acquisition. So tell us a little bit of your career path that led you where you are today. Sure. So I started my career in 2000, straight out of college, right at the end of the tech bubble and into a three-year recession. So that was, I think, actually was to my benefit, that understanding that things don't go up forever and things aren't always good, you know, I think is a, a good skill to have in operations in general. From the start, I've taken a very entrepreneurial approach to my work. My attention tends to always has been drawn to ways that I can improve process and the business overall, regardless of what role I've held along the way. I've also tried to be strategic in selecting opportunities that have given me broad exposure to as many aspects of our business as possible, whether that be, you know, I started in the insurance industry with executive benefits in Coley. I've held positions in an investment capacity. I've, I've been a care planner and I've worked strategically with owners to do what I'm doing now, essentially. And oddly enough, the goal has been since college to be in either a COO or CO-like position. And I thought the more areas of the business I could expose myself to, the better off that I would be. I think to be an effective operator, to hold positions like Tom and I hold, it's very important to have a broad skill set and be able to understand each area of the business and how everything impacts everything else. And I think having that mindset has now given me the ability to really understand the root causes of various challenges that we're facing day to day, and then be able to operate at a high level to make the strategic kind of macro changes that are going to end up in delivering good outcomes. The last few years have been, like you said, pretty crazy rides. I, I started a wealth management business in 2014. I merged with SurePath Wealth Management. I started working with Patrick Brewer, and we grew up pretty fast. We also had a, a marketing and practice management consulting company called Model FA. Those businesses were acquired, and kind of the position that we created within SurePath to address some of these strategic operational challenges that every RA faces. I sort of took that into this, into WellSource and have been kind of advocating for a specific focus on really the product, which is the advisor experience, the client experience, and how we can do things as operators to level up the lifestyle and experience of our stakeholders. So that's my story. 
That's great. I agree with everything you said. I don't understand that, you know, entrepreneurship and everything is so trendy right now. I don't understand the notion of the 21 year old CEO founder of a business. I, I just think you have to everything you said about you have to go and figure out how processes work and scalability, etc. And then you can go start a firm. I don't get it. The 18 year old <laughs> uh, starting it. So I love everything you said. That was great. So your job titles that we talked about a little bit, they're, they're slightly different. But I think at the end of the day, your roles are very similar. You're both focused on that client experience and determining the firm's best service model for your diverse set of clients. So tell me how your role fits into the org chart of your firms. How do you work with the other C-suite executives of the firm? And how do you ultimately work with the advisors at the firm as well? Jason, I'll, I'll go to you first on that one. Sure. So after our acquisition earlier this year, I really advocated for sort of splitting up operations into two positions. So we have a COO and then, then there's me, the CPO, Chief Platform Officer. Our COO oversees the administrative operations such as HR, legal, compliance, finance and accounting, and et cetera. The CPO is really a position focused on, again, the advisor and client experience, standard operating procedures, culture, and making sure that we're really maximizing collaboration, accountability, and productivity across the business, specifically through our technology and project management systems. I think a big part of fast tracking to, you know, we've talked about this before, the move to RIA 2.0, kind of evolving the business past managing as a sales organization and managing RIA as a real business. Uh, one of these things is getting away from the old, uh, what we call the access key platform for advisors, which historically has done a good job enabling advisors to run their business, but mostly leaves it up to them to determine its operational structure. We're trying to take most of the focus off the commodity aspects of the platform in favor of building what we would call kind of a true value-added partnership that creates a higher level of intimacy with our advisor team and blurs the line between where platform ends and the advisor begins. I like to say that the CPO's job is to make it very hard for advisors to leave. And if they do, make it hurt really bad. <laughs> and it's uh, it's pretty easy to replace things like investment strategies and compliance services. However, it's you know leaving deep practice management support, collaborative strategic planning, intentionality around improving the lifestyle of, of stakeholders and the advisor team is extremely disruptive. So we think that approach will both attract new partnerships and then give them a reason to stay with us for a really long time. I love it. And Tom, how does the director of client service fit into the overall org chart at Brighton Jones? Right. So John often says that there's four things that we do at Brighton Jones. We get people and we keep people and we get clients and we keep clients. And we've been using that paradigm for quite a number of years. When I first moved into my role as director of client service, I was also asked to head our HR. First time we ever had a, a director of HR as well. And so using that construct, I was leading three out of the four boxes, if you will, of the organization. And John's primary role was to own, get clients. Fast forward to today, we've got a much different structure. Our C-suite is comprised of a chief operating officer who's responsible for things like keep and get people, as well as finance, technology, et cetera. We've got a chief marketing officer, a director of corporate development, a VP of corporate development that focuses primarily on new markets and new business lines, a chief revenue officer that is responsible for get clients, a chief investment officer, and then a VP of client experience, which is kind of where I live. So 
client experience essentially owns Keep Clients. And I currently report into Carly Billen, who's our VP of Client Experience, and that role directly uh, reports into John. And so the way that I work with the C-suite is through weekly meetings. John and his senior level team have what's called an alignment meeting, which happens every Monday. And the whole idea is to make sure that as a leadership team, that we're all highly aligned on what our objectives and key results are. We'll talk a little bit more about how we do goal setting later on. And then in the afternoon, we have what's called a, a senior lead advisor meeting. And so all of our service teams are uh, broken into service pods. So we've got about 15 of them across the country. And roughly in some markets like Seattle, which is our headquarters, uh, we've got multiple pods within a given geography. Most other pods outside of Seattle are one-to-one, so one pod per geography. And then for any new emerging markets, we've got one pod, which is basically a conglomeration of those developing ones. And then they will at some point grow up and become pods all by themselves. And so the idea of the afternoon senior lead advisor meeting is to make sure that what we're talking about as a senior leadership group is being cascaded to our senior lead advisors. And we're also getting feedback from our senior lead advisors on what's working and not working that as a management team, we need to focus on. And so the communication should be going both ways. High level objectives are being cascaded down to service teams and then boots on the ground issues that are being encountered by our service teams bubble up. And then people like myself are there to catch those problems and document them and hopefully then move on to solve them. And so we have a working agenda where these to-dos are captured and then every week we check them to see what our progress is. And then as we make progress, we kind of knock them off the list. Day-to-day, a big part of my role is to support client service operations. So in addition to focusing on being proactive and strategic on keeping clients, there's just the, hey, you know, stuff's got to get done. We have systems and procedures. We have relationships with our primary custodian, Fidelity. There are hiccups that happen every day. And so part of my job is also fighting fires and checking in one-on-one with team members to make sure that they're feeling supported. One of my favorite movies of all time is Bull Durham. <laughs> and Tim Robbins has a quote at one point in the movie. He says, baseball is a relatively easy game. You throw the ball and you catch the ball. I love the way you've broken down not only just RIs, but business in general. Our job is to get some employees, keep the employees, get some clients, and keep the clients. I absolutely love that. So as we've had our conversations, the three of us leading up to this interview, one of the things we've talked about among the three of us was this general opinion in our industry that quote, operations is boring, or there's a a big belief of the sales folks are the most important around here, and you operations folks are just an expense, and the sales team, we're the ones bringing in the revenue. And you both have some interesting thoughts around this mentality that unfortunately is, in my opinion, is very pervasive in our industry. So Tom, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts around this silly notion of sales versus operations? Yeah, I I think I've got a couple of thoughts. (laughs) The first one is, you know, I just find myself shaking my head whenever you mention this, that this is a sentiment that other firms have, simply because I think it just, it misses out on such great potential for growth in the firm. And then I think, you know, obviously the feeling I have is happiness 
<laughs> because if some of these folks are, are competitors, then there's probably not as much as that I need to worry about if the attitude is that operations can't really move the needle. I've already kind of jotted down the members of our C-suite. And of course, having a chief revenue officer is paramount to growing our business. I don't mean to discount the importance of growth. And it is part of what we call our winning formula. I think I mentioned this to you, Matt. When we talk about our winning formula, the first thing we talk about is having a highly aligned team. Right? making sure that through that process that I just described, our leadership team and our senior lead advisors are highly aligned in terms of what we're working on. Super important that we're all rowing in the same direction. Right, We try to promote what we call a one-team culture where everyone is asked for their input. As John would say, we all get a say, we don't all get our way. Right, So we all want to make sure that we're getting the best ideas, but ultimately our leadership team needs to lead. And if people aren't speaking up, then silence is agreement. And so as the team goes, so do I, is another phrase that we use quite a bit around one team. The other components of the winning formula are client obsession, which is where Carly and I spend most of our time thinking about thinking about how to create a better experience for existing clients and how to create service models and business opportunities that are going to attract more clients. Growth mindset is another pillar of the winning formula. But then the last one, which I mentioned to you, is operations as a strategic advantage. We firmly believe that, again, the firms that are going to be surviving over the next 10 years, they're either going to be doing what most firms are doing, which is busily consolidating. And in our opinion, consolidation for most firms is really a consolation prize for lack of growth. If you're not effectively growing as a firm, you need to get some size and scale. The best way to do it is to acquire another firm. But as we all know, that can be a pretty exhausting process from finding the right fit and then integrating technology and people and such. We would rather spend that time instead of consolidating, just growing and growing organically. And operations, everything that we bring to bear every day in the areas of finance, technology, our ability to recruit internally for new candidates, the ability to train internally, the ability to provide our teams with support across business lines. These are all strategic advantages that help us grow faster. And so we place a huge premium on our ability to be flexible and to adapt. If you look at the pandemic, for example, on March 16th of 2020, across the country, we were all sitting in our offices doing work in-house. On March 17th, we were all 100% remote doing work from our homes. It happened in a day. Every single Brighton Jones employee already had a laptop. We'd issued those a couple of years ago. We'd switched over to Zoom from GoToMeetings. So from a technology standpoint, we didn't miss a beat. And I still talk to some advisors who, in the first few months following COVID, had to force their teams to come into the office because they had no remote technology. Or they, they couldn't adopt the mindset of going virtual. And so that's just one small example of having an operations mindset helped us propel ourselves much faster than most firms. Yeah, I think it's a great example. Yeah. Jason, what do you think of this make-believe conflict? Hopefully it's a make-believe conflict, but in some firms, I think it is real, but this conflict between sales and operations. I agree with 
all of what Tom said. I do think operations has a, a branding problem uh, for sure in our industry, which, you know, and we certainly have some legacy issues to deal with, particularly in our industry. The term in general conflates strategic operations and the building of service model with the execution of commodity tasks like paperwork, which I think has opened us up for getting gaslit into believing that operations should take a subordinate role to sales and relationship management. Unfortunately, I mean, it's also led to autocratic team structures, which are destructive to, to a business, in my opinion. It serves no one, especially the advisors. And in my opinion, if you want to create a great business, you need to flatten your advisor teams, give them agency, give your support staff agency, and empower them to manage up. And you do this through strategic operations. The autocratic model tends to result in a very reactive support staff who's usually their default is to kind of rely on the directives of a lead advisor or somebody higher than them. But that said, I'm, I'm not that worried about it. To Tom's point, I, I view this as an opportunity. Industries tend to evolve and work these things out over time as competition increases. And I think that's what we're, we're going through now as our industry has evolved past kind of the sales organization into you know managing RIAs as real business and and as competition increases and the sophistication of running these businesses increases i would say that if you're saying things like operations is boring and salespeople are the most important people around here you're probably falling behind right now and if you're saying it in 5 to 10 years you're probably not growing fired or out of business so i think we just have to wait i tell the other partners on the team that sales gives you the opportunity to have the business, but operations is the business. And I think the industry is coming around to that slowly, but surely. Slowly, but surely. I think you're right. I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're right. Yes. So as I said, at the top of the hour, you're both in charge of building the client experience at your firms. So I want to talk a little bit about client segmentation. Many advisors will really push back hard when I bring that word up because they immediately think that client segmentation is all about firing the bottom 10% of your clients or maybe not firing them, but drastically limiting the number of services offered to a certain segment of your client base. But I think both of you would agree that client segmentation is really about honing in on who your ideal client is and then determining the proper service offering based on the needs or wants of that ideal client. So Tom, I know Brighton Jones has done a ton of work around client segmentation. Can you talk to us about how you approach this? Yeah, happy to. And I agree with you, Matt, that it's probably a pretty misunderstood topic. I was listening this morning, actually, to, to J.D. Bruce from Abacus on Michael Kitsis. He was doing a great discussion around how Abacus thinks about segmenting their clients. When I think about what segmentation means to us, it, I think it's, it's less about that and more about delivering the right level of value for each client, right? So as I mentioned, when we started in 2000, you know, the landscape was brokers and investment products, right? So as two people who were looking to create an independent advice model, it was a pretty easy bar to exceed. So we led with objective advice and fee-only compensation. We provided tax services, tax compliance services, and we touted ourselves as total balance sheet managers. And so our goal was to find clients who needed a personal CFO. You're the CEO of your life. You have goals and objectives. We're there to be that independent voice that's going to provide you with advice that's tailored 
to be in your best interest because we have no conflicts of interest. That was that was the business model. And we want to own your whole balance sheet. We don't want to just get certain accounts on your platform and focus on performance. We want to see the big picture because if we can see that whole balance sheet, all your assets, all your liabilities, regardless of whether they're considered part of our AUM structure, we're just going to do a better job and it's going to lead to better outcomes. So now, you know, the industry is moving towards some planning, some tax, some total balance sheet management. I'd say the window that we created in terms of our uh, how we went to market and how effective we are is, you know, it's starting to narrow. For us, it's about needing to stay five to 10 years ahead of the competition by pivoting to what we call beyond the balance sheet. Now we're looking at introducing programs like Women Living a Richer Life. So we've got a whole program that's tailored towards our women clients and helping understand them, their unique needs, strategies. We have strategic philanthropy, which is designed to help clients think beyond simply giving and more about aligning their time and money with their passions and purpose. We've got a communities manager who's really focused on identifying other affinity groups that clients want to know one another in based on their passions and their hobbies and their interests. And finally, we're doing what we call purpose planning, which is for those clients who, who realize that they're at what we call vocational freedom, which is that point in your life when you don't have to rely on a paycheck to live your lifestyle. Like, what is my purpose in life? And how do I think about you know, my remaining years through a lens where I'm being true to my values? And so when I think about client segmentation, I think about trying to meet every one of our clients where they are on this continuum, right? If it would be great if every single one of our clients embraced total balance sheet management and beyond the balance sheet. And, and it's our goal to, to figure out where each one of those clients is on that continuum and just keep moving them up the value stack to use a, a parallel to some work that Fidelity has done on the concept of value stack. They would say at the bottom of the stack are things like opening accounts and doing basic money movement. And then the next level up is going to be things like reports and deliverables and maybe some communication portals. And then the next level up is going to be advice. And that's the top of the pyramid. And for us, advice is now the middle of the pyramid. And what we're looking at and saying is what clients really need is to move up that stack and start thinking about from that paradigm of how their money and their values align. And so when we approach each relationship, we're trying to figure out where is this client right now? Are they, we do have our share of investment only clients, people who just come to us because they say, I want good returns. And sure, if you want to do some planning for me, that's fine, but that's really not going to keep me here one way or the other. We have other clients who totally embrace total balance sheet management, but the idea of, you know, talking about mindfulness and emotional and social intelligence or our JETI initiative, which is our justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or women living a richer life, or these other beyond the balance sheet programs that I've mentioned, uh, that doesn't resonate with them. Uh, you know, in, in some cases, clients think it's a distraction. Like, why are you wasting your time talking about these things when you really should be managing my money? And so we've got different clients at different places. And it's our goal to not necessarily put them in a box, but just help them along on that journey to where we find the optimum level of value to deliver to them. That's great. Jason, what role does client segmentation play in your build out of the client experience? Client segmentation is definitely an exercise all firms need to go through. It's by far the most important thing that 
a firm can do to inform you know how you want to build out your infrastructure you know what decisions you're making from a technology standpoint decisions you're making from a positioning and marketing standpoint so it's an important and we do it at wellsource and it's every client has a specific offer we identify um, how many touches per year we're reaching out to them what we're doing in those meetings so we have specific offers for each client but with that said i also think if client segmentation is done right it might put you in the situation to have to make some tough decisions because if your focus is on profitability sometimes creating an exit plan for bad fit relationships is the right thing to do i mean if you look at other firms and other industries they're not trying to create products and offers for everybody. So while I, obviously we serve a lot of different client profiles, but I think as a part of this process to play devil's advocate, you need to think about each offer as a separate product. And if the product is creating a segment, a product for a segment of a client base that adds more complexity to your operations or the need for additional expertise or the need for additional technology tools that are outside of your core stack, it may not be the best decision for the RIA or the advisor long-term. And if you believe that time is a scarce resource and that the advisor cannot manage an infinite number of clients, then you know I like the idea in general of figuring out what you want to be really good at and then building a co cohesive infrastructure behind it to that specific goal. I always tell the advisors, my, you know, the advisors I work with, in our industry, operational chaos is built brick by brick with compromises and fee discounts. And by making the right strategic decisions now, focusing on the right client, finding those 150 to 200 relationships per advisor that really fit the segment of the market that, you know, that you do want to be really good at serving, you're setting yourself up for success because any time that you make a compromise or you know discounting fees, all you're really doing is punting problems into the future. So I try to get at, at least instill that mindset where let's we need to have some flexibility to go up and down the value chain. But the idea that a firm, the same firm that's delivering a white glove wealth management offer that you know with four client touches at meetings a year. And the same firm is going to create a robo investment centric one touch a year offer is interesting to me at, at, a, at the least. It's almost like you're running two separate businesses. So I just like to keep that. This is all important, but I think it needs to be, you know, sometimes you got to make tough decisions and figure out who you want to be, who you want to serve. That makes sense. No, it's perfect. I think a lot of firms are running two completely different firms <laughs> under one roof. And so I think everything you said, that's exactly right. So let's jump to key performance indicators. What KPIs do you both calculate to gauge the health of your organizations? And, and Jason, I'll let you tackle this one first. I have three areas of KPIs that I, that I look at, uh, three categories. So the first is client experience, the second is efficiency of operations, and the third is human capital or hiring decisions. The first one is client turnover. The, the second one is net promoter score that, that um, we're actually just rolling out. This is a new one for us that's going to be captured through client satisfaction surveys. The second category is efficiency of operations. So the three things that, that we're really focused on, gross profit per employee, because that gives us an idea of how are the systems that we're putting in place, how efficient are they? You know, how many people do we have to hire to manage how much profit? The second one is AUM per household and AUM per account. 
So these are metrics that just give us an idea of the quality of client that's being brought in to make sure that we're not bringing in bad fit clients or a lot of advisors by nature, they want to help people. So you got to be careful with advisors, you know, kind of bringing in anybody that can fog a mirror. So this is a great KPI to keep track of like where, where are we headed from a, you know, an average uh, household, average account standpoint. And then the third and final one is human capital and hiring decisions. A lot of the systems and method and, and project management methodologies that we're putting in place on platform, these KPIs really serve as a way to identify how many people we need to bring into that, you know, those service teams. So for instance, an associate, somebody that's supporting an advisor, can they handle 300 households? Can they handle 500 households? Do we have the ability to assign that associate to one advisor, two, three? So we're keeping track of the capacity of the advisor, what's the capacity of the associate, what's the capacity of our operations desk, and that information informs a lot of our hiring decisions on platform. Your KPIs go hand in hand with Tom's simple thought process of hire employees, <laughs> maintain, <laughs> keep your employees, hire clients and keep your clients. I love it that they actually tie. Yeah, they tie really well. <laughs> and I think I, you got to be careful with KPIs. They've got to be actionable and they've got to be, it becomes a situation where if you have too many KPIs, it, it becomes very noisy and the, the information becomes less actionable, right? Because there's just a lot of complexity and these conversations that you're having with other partners become, you know, just like what to focus on. So I like to keep it pretty tight as far as KPIs go. That's great advice. Absolutely. So Tom, what metrics are you calculating? I echo what Jason said. We would like to consider ourselves a data-informed organization, not necessarily a data-driven one. We've worked really hard to harness data. I think it's important that most data that we collect in our business is directional at best, right? It's giving us a, a high-level overview of where things are going, but but the more specific you try to get, the less and less effective it is. So, And like you said, Matt, when I think about KPIs for the business, I think in terms of that get people, keep people. People, et cetera. So on the get people side, I shared with you that we hired 80 people virtually in 2021. And that doesn't happen without keeping really good stats internally in terms of outreach to prospects, how many interviews we've had. We keep all that in a, in a product called Lever. We have dedicated people for interviews for any of your teams, we call it our SWAT team. And the, the hope is that we can look at each of our new candidates through a very consistent cultural and a competency lens so that we can make better decisions. On the keep people side, uh, we survey our folks. We have an internal score. We call it the love score. How much do you love Brighton Jones on a scale of uh, one to five? And in those survey requests to team members, we ask them to provide you know as much candid feedback as they can. All of our surveys are attributed. So when I get a survey back from somebody, it's got their name on it. And culturally, we think that that's just the way we want to go because we want people to feel like they work in an organization where they can voice their concerns and that we can take very positive steps to help address them as opposed to an anonymous suggestion box that doesn't always render feedback that's actually so on the get client side, we use a system called Marketo on our website, and that helps us track what we call marketing qualified leads, which then go to the top of our sales funnel. Uh, we track things like response time to prospect inquiries. We track time from when a client first or a prospect first contacts us. Uh, how long does it take to get through our four-stage pipeline? And obviously, we're tracking new business revenue to goal, both at the, well, at the pod level 
at the business line level and at the firm level. And then on the keep client side, where I spend my time, like Jason, we use the net promoter score system. We've had that in place for about four years now. Our minimum standard for net promoter score is 80 and our standard for overall satisfaction. So in answer to the question, how satisfied are you with the service that you've received from Brighton Jones? On a scale of one to 10, we want to be a nine. Currently on overall satisfaction, we average 9.4. On net promoter, we're averaging around 84. We also spend a lot of time on client and revenue retention. Our standard there is to retain 98% of all of our clients and revenues in any given year. 2021 was a difficult year in terms of client retention. We did not hit that mark. And it was challenging on, on a number of fronts, but I think we're making good progress in, in turning those numbers around. And like Jason, you know, we look, we look at the pod level and try to figure out client capacity per advisor. We look at things like days since last contact. We want to make sure that we understand when clients have been, when we've reached out to clients, client review turnaround, how much time in between formal meetings that we're having with clients. Both of the, those last two are self-reported by our teams through Salesforce. And then finally, we're bringing on a, a CDP, a client data platform, and that system is going to try to help us to develop some predictive analytics around things like measuring client engagement, looking at all of our platforms and seeing the different inputs and which clients are engaging in terms of maybe it's email activity, phone activity, attending events, opening emails, et cetera identifying who's likely to churn or leave and who's likely to refer. These are three areas that we hope to have better data on in, in 2022. This has been such a great discussion. I, I can't thank you both enough. We've really gone deep. My last question, I want to ask you both to look into your crystal ball. And based on your predictions for both the industry and your firm specifically over the next call it 18 months, what are you most focused on today to ensure success in that near term, 18, 24 months, something like that? Jason, I'll let you go first. Yeah, this is an odd question for me because I've been a DFA guy for my entire career and I've been telling clients that I don't have a crystal ball my whole <laughs> life. So I feel like to a certain extent that that holds true here. It's hard to predict you know, where the industry is going. I think particularly for us, we're in a hyper growth phase right now. So at least right now, I'm not too worried about, you know, where the industry is going or, you know, what our competition is doing. You know, my main focus, and I think this whole idea kind of speaks to what all RIA firms can do to, to reach their goals is, one, particularly for me, I'm really focused on all of these new partnerships that we're bringing in, making sure that their first experience with Wellsource is a good one. So, making sure that their transition is seamless. We white glove these transitions so that you know, when all their clients are over, they feel like they made a great decision and coming to board. Other than that, I wake up and try to control the controllables, improve the value of the platform for our advisor teams, improve the client experience, improve the lifestyle of all well-sourced stakeholders, not only the advisors, but the employees as well. But that said, you know, I think these also represent the key differentiators in our industry moving forward as it continues to mature and, and get more competitive. And I think regardless of how our industry evolves, the in intention and focus around these areas of the business transition and you know the things I mentioned around advisor client experience and just making the, the lifestyle of all of your employees and advisors better, you know, all the firms that are focused there are the best chance for success. 
And Tom, where where are you focusing most of your time and energy as, as we head into 2022? Yeah, like Jason, I'm a DFA guy. <laughs> and, and we always tell our clients, you know, we don't predict, we prepare. And when I think about preparation for 2022, I as I've shared with you, I, I think a lot about, you know, what we're going to look like, knock on wood, in a post-pandemic return to office. Because I think we've got two very important constituencies that we need to focus on in 2022. One of them is all the new clients that we brought on. And the other is all the new team members that we brought on. So when, you know, when we were all 100% virtual, it was a pretty easy way to do business. Easy in the sense that it was straightforward. We had no choice, right? And so all of our employee onboardings were virtual. All of our client meetings were virtual. And we were all dealing in a level playing field. But a year later, our team members are suffering, right? They're suffering from isolation. They haven't had the opportunity to really experience what it's like to be a Brighton Jones team member. And, and an important part of that is, you know, the day-to-day interaction action and collaboration with their team members. And so a huge focus for us is going to be getting a more active cadence within our offices to bring those new team members in and and make sure that they are connected and have that strong sense of belonging in our organization. We've also got another 375 clients that we brought on this year. And as I shared with you, you know, we don't know, we don't even know what their eye color is, right? And so we've got to to make a very conscious effort to get face-to-face with those clients as well for a couple of reasons. We say at Brighton Jones, our number one job is to build trust with clients. And the way we do that is through an equation and that we say it's credibility plus reliability plus intimacy equals trust. And I feel like for a lot of those new clients we have, they felt the credibility and the reliability, but we haven't experienced the intimacy yet. We haven't been able to make genuine face-to-face connections, which is so vital to our business. And so part of what we need to solve for those clients is to make sure that we are connecting personally with them because it's such an important part of not only retention, but also, you know, future referrals. Well, you guys have both have been so great. This has been a, a really detailed discussion on how to build the, the proper client experience and how to gauge the firm's success moving forward. Those are all things I know our listeners are, are, are going to get a ton of value from. So thank you both, Tom and Jason, for being here. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it. I suspect Jason would say the same thing. It's just, it's fun to talk about our business. It's, it's a very rewarding one. Yeah. For sure, Matt. Thanks. I appreciate the invite. Thank you both. Well, that is a wrap on episode 37. Thanks everyone for listening and we will talk to you soon.